Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the laws of war. The idea is to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make those areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast, and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues we discuss through the various episodes. You can find links to the materials discussed in all of the episodes, including links to the impressive list of great reading recommendations that have been made by our guests on our website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. Before getting to the introduction of this episode, I should say a few words about the disruption in the routine of jibjab. We've been off the air for a few months, and regular listeners may have been wondering if that was it for the podcast. But we're back, and we will be trying to keep to a regular schedule until the summer. And we do have some very interesting conversations lined up, so stay tuned. Our guest today is Professor René Provost, who is currently a professor of law at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And his research encompasses a range of areas in international law, particularly IHL and human rights, but as well legal theory and legal anthropology. And indeed, this combination of IHL, legal theory, and legal anthropology are reflected in his recent book, which is the subject of our discussion today. The book, Rebel Courts, The Administration of Justice by Armed Insurgents, has already won considerable acclaim. It is at once a deep and rich ethnographic study of rebel courts administered by insurgent groups in a range of armed conflicts from Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq to Colombia and Sri Lanka. And this aspect of the book is fascinating. In our discussion today, we explore some of the methodological challenges in conducting such research and indeed some of the risks involved. But we also discussed the book's exploration of how the very idea of rebel courts and the administration of justice by non-state armed groups challenges certain conceptions of law itself, and particularly state-centered models of law and justice, for which reason we dive into some theoretical discussion of the importance of legal pluralism in trying to understand the nature and operation of law when non-state actors are the ones primarily involved in the apparent administration of justice, whether and how rebel courts conform to certain notions and different aspects of the rule of law. And this necessarily takes us down a few rabbit holes in IHL, including how to interpret the relationship between Common Article 3 and Article 6 of the Additional Protocol 2, and the apparent paradox between states demanding that non-state armed groups comply with IHL on the one hand, but then rejecting the idea that they can administer justice in doing so on the other. So there is much here for everyone, the legal theorist, the IHL specialist, the legal anthropologist, to name just a few. So with that, let us get to the conversation. Well, Renee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. It's uh, happy to be here, Craig. Well, before diving into the substance, you know, uh, from the past, uh, I've been asking guests to the podcast to share something about themselves that's a little bit quirky, something, some insight that uh, perhaps your colleagues don't know about you. Well, there, there isn't some great uh, hidden thing about me, really. But in thinking about it, well, one thing that relates to, to what we're going to talk about is the fact that my father signed up to, to be trained as a, um, an officer of the Royal Canadian Navy in probably late 1944, uh, when the war was still ongoing, he signed up for Royal Roads Naval Academy, uh, which is where officers got trained at that time. And by the time that he, he started his training, the war had ended and he did uh, go through and spent a couple of years there and, and did become a naval officer uh, before switching to, to a different career. But uh, growing up, our house was full of books about 
the Second World War, not just the Navy, but uh, all aspects of the war. And I always has, was had a sense that he, he regretted or had a sense of a missed opportunity that this kind of the great calling of this generation had stand by. But it did uh, probably um, lead me to lead a lot of books about uh, war when I was growing up because they were everywhere around my house. And this uh, is probably part of why I spent my career talking about the lost war. Wow, that's interesting. Well, probably fortunate for him and for perhaps for you that the war ended when it did. It's unfortunate, as you know, Royal Roads is no longer uh, a military college. It's a gorgeous place. It's a university, at least. Yes. Well, we're here to talk, of course, about your book, Rebel Courts, that's already won considerable acclaim and been the subject of a great deal of discussion. I was fortunate enough to, to catch your talk about the book at the Law and Society Conference a few months ago. And as always, with books of this size and complexity, we're going to have a hard time doing it justice in the short time that we have. But I usually find it helpful to begin with the broader big picture issues and then work our way into some of the detail that will help illustrate some of the issues. So perhaps we can just begin with how and why you first became interested in the very idea of rebel courts and really the enormous methodological difficulties you had in doing the research. Of course. So I first came across this idea reading an article published in some sort of 2008 by someone called Jonathan Somers that was a graduate thesis in Geneva that he wrote on the, the lawfulness of armed groups creating their own uh, courts under international humanitarian law. And this was uh, followed shortly thereafter by another piece by Sandesh Sivakumaran, another well-known international humanitarian lawyer. Uh, both pieces analyze the Geneva Conventions and additional protocols to see whether there was a legal foundation for such a practice. And I thought that was an absolutely amazing idea that rebels would create their own justice system. I had never come across this idea, but the two articles did a good job at analyzing convention provisions. And I didn't necessarily think that there was more for me to say than what they had said. And eventually it, it occurred to me that they, they didn't know what they were talking about. And what I mean by that is not that they didn't know how to analyze, analyze the conventions because they're very good scholars, but rather that they were talking about a phenomenon that was basically unknown. And those refer to a very small sampling of sources, either BBC News articles or documents put out by the Tamil Tigers, for example, uh, about their own groups, so sort of sort of propaganda put out by groups about their just system. But no one had ever uh, undertaken to study what groups do when they set up courts and what does the administration of justice by insurgents look like. So part of the project came to 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 figure that out, to do a study of what is it that courts do that some of them have called administering justice, and then to relate that in a more wide-ranging fashion to applicable international legal standards in international humanitarian law, but also international human rights law and general international law. So a, a central challenge, which is methodological in essence, was how to find this information. And it is information that is very difficult uh, to uncover 
for a number of reasons. First is that insurgents on the whole don't tend to share a lot with outsiders because any, any information they disclose may be used against them and may lead to the opposing forces, the government, to, to target them more effectively. So the first uh, difficulty is that central players are reluctant to uh, share that information. The second is more contextual. It, it relates to conflict zones which are places that are not easy to access for researchers like myself. And part of the case studies that I look at in the book uh, relates to conflicts that are over, but others relate to conflicts that were ongoing, some are still ongoing uh, at present. And so places that I thought I could manage, basically, on my one-man operation and other places that simply just I couldn't, I couldn't manage and so I had to devise other ways besides going to the country in question to update information. And some of these work in some contexts and didn't work in other contexts. So the, the methodology was a source of enormous frustration. And I mean, requirements of patients, of which I don't necessarily have a limiting amount, and, and a fair amount of money as well, because I had to fire many, many research assistants uh, speaking an array of languages. So I had to scour the internet and also uh, reach out to people, uh, you know, from, from Colombia to Afghanistan and, and Sri Lanka. So there were serious uh, obstacles. And the final, final challenge um, was what to do with that information uh, once I got it. Because unlike other disciplines like anthropology, law doesn't have a set way of incorporating interview materials into legal analysis. And so you have these people telling you really fascinating things. And then it's hard to figure out you know, where to put that. And, and in the end, I, I both incorporated it into kind of narrative descriptions of case studies, but also I included sort of a box well, throughout the books. I mean, they actually ended up not being in boxes, publishers' choices, but they stand out as, as being the voices of people involved in the rebel administration of justice. And how much time did you actually spend in the field in some of these places like Afghanistan, Iraq? And, and, you know, I mean, when reading the book, one sort of gets the sense that there was a fair amount of risk involved in gathering some of this information. So, so the two examples you give are, are, are good ones. So Afghanistan is a place I did not go to. And uh, because I, what I was interested in mostly was located not in Kabul or in, in the big cities, but rather in outlying areas. I don't know Afghanistan really, and I didn't really have a connection. So I didn't have a system to, to allow me to navigate that in a safe way. Uh, Iraq was easier in the sense that there's a, there's a good part of Iraq, which is uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, which is a lot more stable than the rest of the region and which, which did allow for uh, a base of operation to, to carry out research into the Kurdish groups that I look at, but also the Islamic State, which was an important, an important case study for my, for my group. 
So I had to make choices that were not necessarily always driven by the substance of the research. It's not that the Taliban were less interesting than the Islamic State, but rather that were kind of just taking on board what was realistic for, again, someone like me. And I have to say, maybe somebody is like a graduate student listening to this, that figuring out whether one should go somewhere is really one of the most difficult things that I found in doing this research because you meet people that will say, you know, oh yeah, of course you can go, no problem, it's all good. And others who look at you in horror uh, that you're thinking of going and, and both might know the country quite well. And so it's, it was very difficult to figure out, you know, what was okay and what was not, um, uh, not a good idea. And the fact that I, I did this research and came out of it, you know, nothing happened to me. It isn't necessarily evidence that I made the right choices. I, I mean, it could be that I was lucky and that that was really, you know, it was not a good idea for me to do some of what I did. And I, I wouldn't overstate the risks uh, either. And it's not <laughs> the kind of idea that Jones kind of adventure track. And I, I want to be quite measured in, in assessing the level of risks that I could handle. Because again, you know, I, I land in this place, I'm alone. It's like something happens, no one's coming for me. It's, you know, I, okay, I contact the embassy or whatever in, in Iraq, there were uh, Canadian Special Operations Forces, but, you know, they're not really there for, for someone like me and uh, they didn't really have much time for me. So it, uh, it weighed heavily, I would say, on, on the choices I made and where, where to be. Fascinating. Well, the book itself, I mean, has complex layers of arguments that relate to jurisprudence, to international law theory to, you know, a whole host of issues, which we're going to try to, to delve into to some extent. But I wonder if it might be better to begin by just sort of what is the overarching argument that you are sort of advancing with this book? Uh, and I think we can start there and then circle back to it at the end and, and sort of tie a ribbon on it. Sure. And, and I could put that as a series of questions that hopefully I answer uh, convincingly in, in the book. And so the first question is really conceptual. Does the idea of rebel justice make any sense at all? Or is this just a contradiction? And it's just like a crazy idea. And just I, I'm being swept up in the propaganda put out by these groups themselves. And, and as, a, as a jurist, I shouldn't actually entertain the, the coherence of the idea of rebel justice. So a first part of the book is to try to answer that and to try to show that there is in fact no inherent contradiction between uh, armed insurgency and the administration of justice and that the two has to be married. A second part of the book looks at the question of whether any part of international law prohibits allows or requires armed groups to administer justice. And again, it's a, a little bit unexpected to find how there are nooks and crannies in IHL, but also human rights and even international criminal law 
that are somewhat welcoming to the possibility of uh, armed groups in zones of conflicts creating their own justice system. Then a question of, you know, okay, if that's allowed, what, what does it look like? And how does law structure justice at, at the hands of armed groups in order to be legitimate? And this calls for more technical answer, looking at things like uh, questions of uh, jurisdiction, questions of due process of law uh, before courts, and, and the ways in which these must, be, these must be adapted to the reality of rebel justice. And finally, a uh, last kind of question, which was, what does it all mean? Is it just stuff that armed groups do? in areas under the control and uh, it might be interesting and it might be interesting in a very limited localized way. It might be interested in a kind of a counterinsurgency perspective, but as far as a legal phenomenon, it is limited. And I concluded that in fact, it is not that limited and that it reverberates significantly well beyond uh, in place and in time any area of effective authority or control by a norm group in a given conflict. And I, I look at the impact of rebel justice internationally in international bodies like the uh, International Criminal Court in, uh, on other states that are not involved in a conflict on, on the, the state at war with the armed group itself. And finally, transversely amongst different armed groups. And in each place, I found answers and, and elements in existing international law that were surprisingly more complex and subtle than I had anticipated at the outset. So, you know, maybe we can sort of work through those questions in order. And the first one, as you say, you examine the issue of rebel governance and rebel administration of justice and what this means for the conceptions of the rule of law and then our idea of state sovereignty. and as I understand it, you sort of suggest that this challenges our notion of the rule of law to some extent, but also that rebel governance and administration of justice itself reflects and conforms with certain ideas of the rule of law. So maybe we can delve into that a bit. Sure, sure. And it's, it sort of underpins all our thinking about uh, law and justice is this idea of um, the rule of law, which is at the same time central and uh, extremely vague, right? It is a, a, an essentially contested concept, as, uh, as the saying goes. And what's what's important to appreciate uh, is that the debate that we find in sort of legal theory and, and legal philosophy around uh, the rule of law between those who argue for what they describe as a thin conception of the rule of law, which has just a few constitutive elements to those uh, that are at the thick end, where it incorporates a law of human rights law, um, including uh, due process guarantees. All of that uh, along the entire spectrum is connected to a certain vision of the rule of law that is derivative of the way in which states administer justice. And in that way, the rule of law is a, a discussion around how states administer justice, which does not open very wide uh, the possibility that 
other entities might be involved in the administration of justice. Now, that, that is the state of the conversation as it occurs now, but it is hard to reconcile with the reality and uh, the, the takeover of uh, the idea of justice by states is uh, quite recent and it has never been a kind of a, a complete monopoly that would match the discourse around the rule of law. So we don't need to go back very far in time, uh, even in uh, Europe, uh, the country that is most associated with uh, current iterations of the rule of law, to find times in the Middle Ages where the state or the prince didn't have much to do with law, and that law was something that each community or each group had, so that the merchant had their law, the nobles had their law, each religion had its own uh, uh, laws, um, each of those with, it, with its own institutions, its own courts, and also that a, a court, let's say, a canon court, would also sometimes apply uh, merchant law. And, and so there was a mixture, there was not a neat division between that. But through all of that, what wasn't particularly present was the state as a source of law. And even if we look at uh, the common law in England, the history of the common law is the creation of royal courts that progressively uh, expanded the, the effective uh, influence of the king in London through uh, the administration of justice, but by applying local customs as they happen to exist uh, in, in, in every part of um, England. So we see there that it wasn't the king claiming to make the law. That idea only came much, much, much uh, later. And even today, in, in, in all places, there is a lot of law happening uh, that is disconnected from the state. And in places like Afghanistan and, and many parts of Africa, much of the life of the laws, we might say, happens in ways that are not connected to the state. So applying customary norms before you know, tribal uh, courts or, or bodies like uh, jurgas that are necessarily differential to what the state has to say about something. So once we appreciate that the discussion around the rule of law has this kind of uh, alignment with monopolistic claims by states that uh, they uh, control the, uh, the resort to law and the administration of justice, uh, we can start to construct uh, uh, an idea of the rule of law that is uh, broader and that takes into account the fact that other entities are active in uh, the administration of justice and also in the creation uh, of law. There's a little bit of a discussion that has occurred around situations in which the United Nations takes over the administration of a territory. And, you know, when uh, there's a UN peacekeeping force that is in charge of uh, Haiti, uh, it's not a state. And yet there doesn't seem to be really any reason why we wouldn't demand of the United Nations that it behaves in a way that's consistent with the rule of law. So there's a little bit of a discussion that exists in the literature uh, around that. But of course, 
the suggestion that rebels might actually take on the mantle of justice and uh, the rule of law is, is a lot more provocative. And it begs the question of, you know, well, then if, if, uh, if the FARC and the Taliban and the Islamic State, you know, why not, uh, you know, the mafia and, uh, you know, where do we start and what is, um, what is the difference and are there parameters that allow us to differentiate between what might be called a practice that is consistent with the rule of law and something that is just pure power and violence that is imposed upon a population by you know, those who uh, have such power. And so I, I identified four elements of the rebel rule of law in the book that I put forward as parameters that do allow us to make a difference between the practice that merits uh, the association with the rule of law and those that don't. So the, the four elements are first that it must be part of a, a broader system of public governance. So law doesn't exist on its own. You can't just, you know, set yourself up as a judge and, and be disconnected from a broader regime of governance in part because in order for decisions issued by a, a court to have a tangible effect, they must be endowed with what uh, we can describe as a social capital. Right, it must be done by someone who has authority and who plays a central role in managing the life of the community. So, in otherwise, be involved in public governance. And of course, a number of armed groups in conflict zones do engage in yeah. public governance, uh, what is sometimes described as rebel governance. Uh, secondly, there must be a degree of stability and predictability in the administration of justice and. There are, there are two implications to this idea of stability and predictability. One is uh, normative. So this corresponds for criminal law to the principle of uh, nullum crimen and sine lege. So, so laws must be fixed and knowable so that people you know, know what to expect to adjust their behavior in order to avoid breaching the law if they can. So uh, there must be, laws must not be constantly changing or simply impossible to figure out. There is, there are also institutional dimension to stability and predictability. So if you have norms, but nowhere to go with them and no ways to activate the administration of justice, then this is not a system that is infused with the rule of law. So laws must be activated. Now, often there aren't courthouses where you can go and, you know, and file your, your brief and, and pay uh, your stamp duty. But there are other ways in which uh, laws can be activated in a, in a relatively stable and predictable ways, even for conflict zones where rebels don't have a, an absolute fixed presence. So, you know, in Colombia, for example, the FARC uh, often had a very fluid presence. But in every village, there would be someone uh, who knew who to talk to, uh, the mosca, the fly. And, and if you had an issue, right, if your neighbor's cows trampled your field and destroyed your crop and, uh, you know, you wanted the FARC to, you know, adjudicate uh, on, on issues like that, a very common example, you would go see the mosca and ask that, uh, the, you know, the FARC come by. 
and uh, eventually, uh, you know, a, a FARC uh, patrol would come and the commander would sit up and decide the case. And the Taliban had similar ways of um, being alerted in a village. Someone would have a phone number and you can, you can call and register your case on the roll. And then uh, a week later, a Taliban judge would drive into town on his motorcycle and, you know, and bring all the people with cases uh, and then you know, it goes through the... Uh, go through the role for that case. So that was stability and predictability as a second element. Third element is minimal fairness. So the rule of law speaks to a particular way of making decisions. And it's a way in, of making decisions in which interests are uh, minimally protected. So this speaks in part to the degree of uh, independence and impartiality of the decision maker. If the decision maker is neither independent or impartial, then clearly that process is not an embodiment of uh, the rule of law. But also principles like ideas are important, so the right of both parties to induce evidence to be heard, the finality of decisions, like, you know, once it's decided, it's, it's decided and it's the end. Again, these are elements that we do find uh, embodied in some uh, rebel justice system. And finally, as a fourth element, is that this uh, practice be inscribed in a narrative of social justice. Uh, and this might seem a little odd, but the point here is that rebels have to call it law and justice in order for anybody else to uh, label it as such. And there, there's a lot of uh, things forum groups do that are, are violent and, and represent their... Um, position of their authority that they do not call law. And I think it's, it, it's unjustifiable to then uh, come from the outside and label it as law. I think that there is an aspirational dimension to the idea of the rule of law. It speaks to a certain wish that fairness obtain in uh, settling disputes. And so that claim must be made and must be articulated by the group in order or uh, for us to consider it as such. Interesting. So in this analysis, in this part of the book, in making this argument that indeed rebel courts and administration of justice and rebel governance does conform in, in many ways with some conceptions of the rule of law, you rely to a fair extent in good McGill tradition on legal pluralism. Uh, and so I, I thought it would be helpful for you to just explain a little bit for students out there who may not know very much about legal pluralism, yeah. what it is and, and how it is that it really advances this part of the argument. So, yes, absolutely. And, and legal pluralism is a bit of a, it's a, bit of a mysterious idea for, for many people, for many lawyers. And, uh, and, and the reality is that all of us grow into the law as positivists, mostly. We, we get to law school and, and uh, the focus is on, you know, learning what are the rules and contracts towards property, constitutional law, et cetera, et cetera. And the focus is really on thinking about law in a given way that is very much connected to, to the state. Now, if your idea of law is that it is something that is intimately associated with the state, then a discussion about rebel administration of justice would be a lot shorter, it would be a lot shorter book, uh, which might be a good thing in some ways. But it, it sort of deprives you of 
uh, the tools of the jurist to consider in more depth what is happening on the ground. And, and this is something that, I mean, I haven't uh, insisted upon it, but many or groups in many, many conflicts create courts. It's, a, it's an extremely common phenomenon, not all groups in, 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 in all conflicts, but it is not rare by any measure uh, at all. And so this is something important, and it's something important in the everyday lives of individuals. And we tend to, to focus a lot on a small number of cases like, you know, British and American volunteers with Ukrainian forces being captured and tried in eastern Ukraine by the, the courts of the People's Republic, uh, Luhansk or Donetsk, uh, which happened recently. And these are unrecognized uh, non-state entities with their own courts. And these are high visibility uh, cases that attract a lot of attention and criticism, much of it which is rightly critical uh, in my view, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But beyond those high visibility cases, people get married, get divorced, have fights over alimony, have fights with their neighbors about, you know, cows trampling crops, or they, they disagree who owns this bit uh, of land, uh, or, you know, they're in business and they have a contractual dispute uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, just ordinary life goes on in war zones, and very often um, the regular court system will not be operational, if it ever was operational. And, and people need legal security. They need answers. And the alternative is vigilante justice. So people take their gun and they go discuss with the neighbor what the compensation should be for crops destroyed by uh, the cows. But this can quickly degenerate into, you know, all out violence. People don't want that. Pe people really would rather they didn't have to pick up their gun to do this kind of thing. They would rather somebody else come in and tell the neighbor, okay, in fairness, you owe this much money to compensate for you being negligent in maintaining the barrier, keeping your cows in your own field. So there is an enormous demand on the part of the civilian population for uh, legal security and not really the only entity that they can put those demands to are the rebels because the state might not be present or it might be present and not responsive. And, and it's good to bear in mind as well that uh, wars are much less frequent in countries with very strong rule of law institutions, right? There are fewer civil wars in Finland than there are in Afghanistan. And this is not completely unrelated to the fact that the uh, judicial system of Afghanistan was completely corrupt and, and inefficient and slow and, and all of that. And likewise for Colombia and for Syria and Iraq and so on and so So... There is demand sort of bottom up. And, and this, you know, uh, FARC commanders in Colombia told me, said, you know, we, we get into a village and people come to see us and say, oh, well, they, they are these kids that, uh, you know, they're selling drugs and they're, they're doing this and that. And so what are you going to do about it? And, and the commander said, we have to do something because otherwise they, they would say, you know, who are you then? And then there was a real challenge to the authority of the FARC in general in the area. So they, they really felt pressure to, to deal with it. And on the other hand, just 
going over and you know putting a bullet in the knee or or, or in the head, depending, uh, would not have been well received either, right? Because these were local kids as as well. So people wanted something fair, but they did want something done. And um, not necessarily that this is the reflection of some kind of strategy uh, by their own groups that, you know, they identify the administration of justice as a way to uh, further their insurgency as a, you know, a good um, strategic move. Although some do precisely that, and the Taliban did, in fact, do that and, and did deploy its judges as sort of the first wave. To take over an area. So, so the administration of justice in Afghanistan preceded the military takeover by the Taliban. But this is one model, but it's not often the fork were completely different, uh, different models. So the, the point of all of this is to say that there is a sort of an everyday, very ordinary aspect to this question, which is extremely significant or populations affected by war. And a focus that is exclusively devoted to law by the state and of the state will really miss a lot of what's going on because often the state just isn't there. Often the state wasn't there before the war either. Uh, or if it was there, it was just more of a problem than not. And so legal pluralism offers an alternative to that. And suggests a, a much broader idea of uh, law. And we can sort of identify four elements that define legal pluralism and that are in contrast to four central tenets of positivism, which uh, most lawyers would uh, identify with. So legal positivism reflects monism, so law is unified and coherent. It reflects centralism linking law to state sovereignty, positivism. So law is, uh, rules are distinct from facts. And prescriptivism, so uh, law is an external constraint imposed to change behavior. Now, legal pluralism has an alternative to each of these four uh, tenets. So legal pluralism offers that law is fragmented. So law is not necessarily coherent across an entire legal regime or system. Law is decentralized. There are many sites and processes to create and apply law. Law is contingent. So norm, the content of norm crystallizes only when it is engaged in a particular context, uh, you know, to some, uh, to some extent. And finally, law is deliberative. So law is less of a command than a space for the collective creation of meaning. So this is a much more fluid uh, and kind of open-ended and broad idea of law within which it is much easier to fit the administration of justice by own groups, as well as, you know, tribal courts in Africa, uh, religious tribunals in, in various parts of the world and so on and so forth. And to look at that as all instances of law and justice and being able to use the tools of the jurists to uh, speak to these practices. Right. And so it's rather obvious how that would assist in thinking about 
this idea of rebel justice and an administration of justice doesn't originate with the state. But for our listeners who are worried that they stumbled into an episode of borderline jurisprudence and not jib jab, <laughs> let's turn to the second big issue, which is the legality of these rebel courts. Yes. And in this part, you engage in detailed analysis of this form of administration of justice within the context of both international humanitarian law and international human rights law, yeah. and the different ways and extent to which we might include that these courts do in fact conform to standards and rules of IHL in particular. Yeah. So let's really sort of dive into the nitty gritty of this and maybe begin sort of again with the broader uh, conclusion. What do you conclude regarding the legality of these courts from an IHL and human rights perspective. Right. So, and, and you're right that, so that this is not a book, uh, you know, in philosophy nor anthropology. My, my goal was to be a lawyer, right? And, but to be a, a more informed lawyer and, and hopefully a, a more intelligent lawyer by kind of taking on board various aspects. But uh, I'm still looking at this in and thinking that legal standards matter and, and that we should be interested in what does law have to say? Uh, because law is um, a tool that has proven efficient at engaging with a range of actors that includes non-state armed groups. And this is a really important aspect. And there are organizations like uh, Geneva Core, which is an NGO based in, in Switzerland, I'm going to address that, has approached over 50 non-state armed groups in conflict zones and, and gotten them to agree to stop using anti-personnel landmines. And so, and this is clearly inspired by the Ottawa uh, Landmine Convention and international law. And to, to my mind, this is a, a, um, a compelling illustration of the fact that you can actually speak law to non-state armed groups, even groups like the Taliban, which have a completely different you know, uh, uh, world, uh, vision and, and, and understanding of what they're doing, uh, they're not completely averse to, uh, to speaking about law. Islamic State is a further field and, and more challenging uh, to engage with on that front. So what does international law have to say then? Uh, so you asked me to begin by the end and, and what the, t the conclusion or takeaway is, and I think that the conclusion is that it is clearly lawful for non-state armed groups to create their own court systems in as much as uh, they do so in a fashion that respects the conditions that uh, are found in, in, in the Geneva Conventions and protocols and uh, other international law standards. And so... How, how can I uh, defend this conclusion? How do I arrive at that? And the starting point is Common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention. And this passage in Common Article 3 that, that prohibits passing of sentences and carrying out executions without previous judgments pronounced by a regularly constituted court. And so the question then becomes, what is a regularly constituted court? And does regularly mean regularly pursuant to the law of the state, or is this a, an expression that could be understood in, in ways that are not necessarily tied to legality under the domestic law uh, of the state? And I look at both the history of Code 3 and the way that it has been interpreted by a range of 
States. And I find that uh, there is really no basis uh, to limit the idea of regular constitution to domestic law of the state, because it's understood that you know, no state has on the books a law that authorizes armed insurgents to create their own court system. I mean, that's, right. that's a sort of a given that all of this is illegal under domestic law, right, of every state. But that is not determinative of whether it's lawful under public international law. It's not rare that something is illegal under domestic law uh, and illegal under international law or vice versa, as we see with uh, international crimes. So how, how could an R group regularly constitute a justice system in ways that would be consistent with common uh, article three? And so why, you know, what, what is regular constitution, even for states, is kind of instructive. Uh, in in that way. And this is uh, for uh, American listeners uh, of the podcast, uh, something that is familiar terrain because the American Supreme Court has over the years since, since World War II had occasions to speak to the, the concept of uh, the regular constitution of courts and the um, you know, the, the difference between the World War II cases like Yamashita and more recent cases like Hamdan uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court is that only the more recent case considers common article three because the older ones predate, uh, predate the adoption of the 1949 conventions. In its discussion, the um, U.S. Supreme Court looks at a practice that is really, it's, it's not only the U.S. that does this, but it's relatively uh, unusual that the United States has a long-standing practice of recognizing that the power to um, pursue war includes the power to administer occupied territory, which includes administering justice by way of military commissions. And, and so all of this connects in U.S. constitutional law, the creation of military commissions to the executive branch of government rather than to the legislature. And I, I do want to note in passing that the United States is not the only country that does this. And indeed, British occupation courts in Germany were established pursuant to the royal prerogative rather than uh, on the basis of a statute. And this will sound somewhat mysterious to, to people who don't know uh, British constitutional law, but the point is that it's, again, a form of executive decision rather than parliament or Congress enacting a statute as the only way that a court can be regularly constituted. And these are ways that can meet the concept of the regular constitution because what we see is, and, and this is where the old uh, Yamashita decision is interesting, in that case, the dispute surrounded the fact that they basically created a, a, a court just for Yamashita. And this was kind of an ad hoc court meant to just try him. And this was largely the point of contention between different members of the Supreme Court. But a, a, a decision to create a court by an executive order that really creates a system 
that is established and not dealing with, with particular cases can meet the requirements of regular constitution. And this kind of decision-making we do find in armed groups as well. Now, armed groups rarely have a parliament or a kind of a legislative assembly, but they sometimes have processes whereby they adopt decisions that are kind of institutional decisions uh, that are somewhat similar to the decision to create courts under the royal prerogative in England or executive power in the United States. And if an armed group decides to, by way of a um, decision that is disconnected from any particular case, to create a court uh, with a general mandate to apply an identified body of law, then I think an argument can be made that this is a way for armed groups to regularly constitute courts. So if I go back to uh, Donetsk and uh, Luhansk for, for a moment in eastern Ukraine, where these American and British uh, soldiers were prosecuted, and they've since been uh, released back uh, to, to their respective countries, but they were prosecuted and convicted to, to the death penalty for, for some of them. Uh, the tribunals that uh, carried out these trials actually were established pursuant to the constitutions of the Nyats and Luhansk that were adopted in 2014 when these zones became autonomous from the rest of Ukraine. And progressively, the authorities uh, of these uh, non-state and unrecognized entities uh, set up courts that basically took the place of the Ukrainian courts that had been ordered by the Ukrainian government to cease operation in the Donbass. And so, for example, that for me is a case of courts that were regularly constituted. There were many other problems with those trials, but the regular constitution actually wasn't one of them. Were they independent and impartial? Were they, that's a different question. Was there due process again? That is quite dubious that, that there was, but they were regularly constituted. So I think that is a, a very important conclusion because it does open a door for some courts that would be validly established. And then it begs further questions as to if they're validly established, how then can they lawfully decide cases? And it, it takes us to a second layer of questions. So before we get to those, I mean, how do you understand the relationship between common Article 3 and this notion of regularly constituted courts with the language in Article 6 of additional Protocol 2, which doesn't have that particular language, and I think some have tried to argue creates more of an opening for this kind of irregular court, so to speak. Yeah. So, and then here we get kind of more like an inside baseball kind of discussion about the the, the different language used in uh, Protocol 2 and Common Article 3. And the fact that in Protocol 2, we don't refer to regularly constituted court and only to courts that uh, essentially operate fairly. And some have seen Protocol 2 as embodying an approach of rightness through fairness. So if courts operate fairly, then they, they are right, and then they are entitled to administer justice. And 
this is a, a confusion between regular constitution and the fair administration of justice due process that was consummated in the elements of crimes of the Rome Statute, where the, of course, the, the violation, the crime itself is defined using the terms of Common Article 3, but the elements of crimes incorporate the approach of Protocol 2 to essentially declare that the court will be regularly constituted if it operates fairly. Now, I, I find this really quite unpersuasive. And, and I don't think that this is justified for at least two reasons that are somewhat kind of straightforward. The first reason is that regular constitution and fair trials are different things. They're, they're just not the same and we're not looking at the same elements and they don't ultimately aim to provide the same kind of protection. And so replacing one with the other actually eliminates significant protections that uh, the Geneva Conventions do provide. And that seems to be quite undesirable. And it's not clear at all why we would want to get rid of a requirement of regular constitution. And uh, another aspect of this, which I think is important to bear in mind, is that this argument would also apply for states, so that even states would no longer have to regularly constitute their courts. They would just have to have courts that operate or commissions that operate fairly. And I'm not sure that this is a road that seems particularly inviting for uh, the way in which we want justice in conflict zones to develop. I think that there are good reasons to insist upon regular constitution of courts uh, in 1949. And those reasons had a lot to do with experiences during World War II, where many kind of military commissions were created by relatively low-ranking officers and applied justice in, in quite a rough-and-ready fashion, uh, and not just by the Germans, but also by the Allies. And by 1949, when, you know, heads had cooled a little bit, everybody acknowledged that that hadn't really been such a great thing and that there should be a more structured approach to how justice is done, even in conflict zones. So the first point is uh, kind of substantive. So to say that these speak to different kinds of guarantees, and both of them are important. The second point is more formal, which is that Protocol 2 is supplementary to common Article 3, was supplementary to all 1949. Geneva Convention. It does not replace or displace Common Article 3. So, formally speaking, Common Article 3 applies to every situation to which Protocol 2 applies. And it's the obligations of states and non-states actors are equally binding under additional Protocol 2 and under Common Article 3, even in conflicts in which Protocol 2 would be applicable. So this is a more kind of formal legal right. argument to say that, well, this is a rule that is also applicable and binding and it must be complied with. And for that reason, I find that this kind of erasure of the requirement of regular constitution in the elements of crime, in the kind of articulation of the elements related to the violation of common article three 
and the prohibition of carrying out sentences without a judgment in regularly constituted court. This was really unfortunate, ill-advised, and should be changed. Or, I mean, the elements of crows are not binding, so I just say that we should just ignore that. So as you say, you have these arguments as to how it is that, in your view, we can accept that some of these rebel courts, as you call them, are indeed regularly constituted as required by Common Article 3. You also indicate that the requirements of fairness, impartiality, independence, and so forth also have to be fulfilled. In your empirical research, to what extent do you find that indeed a number of these systems of administration of justice do comport with, to various extents, these principles of fundamental fairness and justice? Right. So, I mean, it's a fair question, but one which I, I don't directly answer in the book. And, and this is something that it's been reproached to me already, and it, it's a fair it's criticism. In that. So I don't, you know, I have in, in the book, for each chapter, I have like a big chunk that is sort of a narrative description of one particular uh, armed group. You know, the Taliban, the, the FARC, Islamic State, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, and then the Kurdish groups in Iraq, Syria, and Kuwait. I don't have, at the end of the chapter, a conclusion that says, you know, well, the Taliban's courts are lawful, but ISIS's courts are violations of international law. Because I, my sense was that I just didn't have enough information to really make these broad-based judgments, although uh, specific elements do seem to be met only in some cases and not in other cases. And and I can say, stay with Taliban and ISIS as as good examples because, I mean, they're they're both, uh, you know, Islamic fundamentalist groups, so they, they have similar kinds of claims as far as the kinds of norms that they apply. And they're both, uh, you know, extremely brutal groups, but very different approaches to the administration of justice. And the one example I can give is related to the requirement of independence and impartiality of judges. And so independence and and impartiality does not require neutrality vis-a-vis the objectives of the group. And... It's easy to understand that when we appreciate that, you know, the the, the military commission of the United States is there to further the policies and objectives of the United States. And and so it is for every country. And so it is indeed for every armed group. So the courts of the Taliban are there as uh, an arm of the Taliban, and they are there to further the project of the Taliban. And that isn't problematic. There is nothing in international law that requires some kind of uh, a neutrality vis-a-vis the aims of the group. There's only a requirement of independence and impartiality, which are very different concepts. So independence means that the decision maker makes a decision uh, rather than being controlled by uh, somebody else. And there are examples that are given in, in the book of courts in the Democratic Republic of Congo run by uh, rebel groups where not the judge would phone the leader of the group every night to say, well, okay, this happened today. And, and the leader would say, okay, well, you do that in this case. And, and so obviously, you know, this is not an independent decision maker. And here there's a, a marked difference between the Taliban and the Islamic State in that respect. 
the the Taliban had a, a much more hands-off approach to cases being decided by their by their judges. And and in that sense, I don't mean that they were not involved because every judgment had to be approved by a provincial commission uh, before it became effective. But that process was not uh, an invitation for what you might describe as political interference with uh, the way in which the case was resolved. And, and so on the whole, and there are always exceptions in, in all these cases, but on the whole, uh, Taliban judges did what they did. And, and the leadership Especially the military leadership was was a separate branch of the Taliban and did not interfere in sort of the, the the operations of the wheels of justice. ISIS was very different. And um, there there was uh, a a much shorter rope between the the leadership of the group and ISIS judges. And there are many examples of ISIS judges being punished, sometimes executed, for issuing judgments that displeased the leadership. And so this, in this uh, scenario, we see that there is no real independence of ISIS judges in this context because they were all very keen to guess you know, what the leadership wanted and, and to do exactly that, because otherwise it's not good for your health. So, so we see a, a distinction there that is possible only if you have a standard that gives you a sense of what is permissible and, and what is not. And we, we can make parallels there with uh, military commissions in in the armed forces of many states where, you know, officers sit as judges and there are, you know, endless debates in different militaries as to the degree of integration of officers sitting as judges into the chain of command and, and the extent to which, you know, there has to be some kind of distance. So we see that even for states, it's not straightforward, right? It's right. The, the, the lines are somewhat blurry and... People are willing to acknowledge that, okay, justice in the war zones is complicated and you have to acknowledge that what goes on, you know, in, in peacetime, in civilian courts, it can't necessarily be replicated in a, a military setting. And, and so, so it is as well for, uh, for the courts of non-states or groups. Uh, but even with that, we could still make a difference between the two examples that I gave between the Taliban and the Islamic State. But, you, but I don't kind of systematically, you know, for each criteria, ask myself, okay, how does that play out for the Tamil Tigers, the Polisario, the FARC, the, you know, so I don't do that because it's, um, I, I often didn't have enough information because even after, you know, five years of research, it was still quite fragmentary, what I had. And, and so there are bits that are, are missing in all of these case studies. Right. And yet one has the impression by the end of the book that you are quite convinced that these courts, in some respects and to various extents, do conform to our idea of, of justice. 
and that these are legitimate and valid administrations of justice to some extent. And yet, you point out that states generally don't accept the validity or legitimacy of these courts. And it strikes me that there's you know, an interesting sort of paradox, is probably not quite the right word, but a contradiction here that particularly additional protocol two depends for the very classification of a non-international armed conflict on the idea that the non-state actor armed groups are capable of implementing the provisions of the protocol, mm -hmm. uh, which would include Article 6 and the prosecution of crimes and offenses committed within or related to the armed conflict, which would seem to suggest a contemplation that these armed groups will implement Article 6 and therefore prosecute offenses. And so there, there seems to be some, something of a contradiction in that we contemplate additional protocol to requiring that non-state actors administer justice in some form, and yet, nonetheless, states reject and refuse to recognize uh, the validity and legitimacy of these courts, which you, in your research, find do comply and conform to various extents and, and in various ways to our notions of the fair administration of justice. Yeah, and, and this is not um, something that wasn't on the radar when... Article 6 of Additional Protocol 2 was negotiated in uh, Geneva between 1974 and 1977. The, it, I did go kind of a dive into the travaux préparatoires of, uh, of this and other provisions. And in uh, looking at the discussions of the state representatives, there are some of them are saying very clearly this must be formulated in this way in order to provide a foundation for all groups to be able to establish their own court system in conflict zones. And, and you have other governments that forcefully object to such a suggestion to say that, you know, this should be rejected because of the same reason. And so at the least that you could say that this was, this doesn't come from some dark corner, like it's a little bit dark, but it was identified at the outset. So the, the requirements for the applicability of additional protocol to that the non-state uh, group be able to uh, implement the protocol clearly envisages a degree of organization and, and, and leadership of the group. But uh, beyond that, the, as, um, the, the need for public governance by armed groups in areas under their control. And now governments never like to entertain the possibility that any part of their territory might not be completely under their control. And so it's not an extremely explicit aspect of additional protocol two. But as you just put it, it's hard not to read it as implying such, such a possibility, indeed, uh, such a, a requirement. So there are ways in which you can read that to say that all groups are required to set up a justice system, because if they don't, what happens? Quite plausibly, there will be some kind of a, a social unrest in areas with no court system at all available. And the state can't really be blamed if it doesn't have control, if it doesn't have the ability to intervene. But if the armed group does have the ability to intervene, it is, you know, the designated agents that you want to make accountable for that. So you can't blame them from not doing something while at the same time 
refusing to acknowledge that they are entitled to do that very same thing. So there is a contradiction there that can only be resolved by acknowledging that armed groups can administer justice. And this, you know, in addition to that, you could also speak about, you know, a duty to prosecute uh, war crimes committed by a group's own fighters. And how are they supposed to prosecute if not by by way of creating their own court system? I mean, the idea that they would have to surrender their own fighters to the state is, is a little bit ludicrous, right? Especially if you think about situations like Syria, where the courts of the state are not fair. And so it's that there's no exit apart from allowing the Kurds in Syria to create their own court system, which is comparatively much fairer within the courts of the state of Syria. There is also a duty to respect and ensure respect of IHL under common article one of the conventions, which arguably applies to non-state armed groups as well. So those groups have a duty to ensure IHL. Clearly, everybody agrees that those groups have to respect the rules, but also to ensure respect. So to take measures to prevent, punish, investigate violations of IHL by third parties, including private actors. Again, how could they do that in ways that are consistent with the rest of international law? Well, that calls for a court system. And finally, you know, command responsibility in international criminal law is yet another angle that reinforces the same idea, where a commander, if a crime is committed under his or her authority, must, you know, sanction that crime. Well, how is that commander supposed to punish that crime if they're not allowed to have their own court system? So you see that there are these various norms that can converge to confirm the lawfulness of uh, armed groups creating their own court system. Right. And so, I mean, zooming right back out to so where, where we started and your overall conclusions, I mean, one of your conclusions is there just needs to be more research done on these issues. But you also state in the conclusion that the international law itself should nudge the practice of rebel courts towards a closer approximation of justice. And this would imply that there should be greater recognition of such courts by states. And so I guess, uh, and this is perhaps an unfair question, but how do you see that playing out exactly? And what, like, what form should this nudging take? And presumably the book is indeed one, one such form, but going forward, how do you see the nudging states towards affording greater recognition? Yeah, well, I mean, the starting point is that you can't engage with what you deny exists. And so... Recognition is a necessary initial step to engaging. And the, the other starting idea is, what's the alternative to engaging? I mean, you know, this, this is a study that looks at a phenomenon that is limited by the existence of an armed conflict. So I only look at situations to which IHL is applicable. And there are many situations outside of that that raise somewhat similar questions, but I, it was big enough for me, so I, I limited myself to that. So, you know, you're already at war with this armed group and presumably, you know, if you could force them to do something, you would force them to surrender. So you can't really force them to do anything. So the only alternative is to engage with the group, which implies recognition, as I say, to 
to engage with armed groups about their court system doesn't necessarily imply that you recognize that they are fair. And, and again, you know, we, we go back to an earlier point about, of course, states have courts, but they're, they're not all fair. So we, it's not because we say that, you know, there are courts in North Korea that, you know, it's a fair justice system. It certainly isn't. And so what exactly is the problem with saying that the, the PKK, to take quite an extreme example, again, in Turkey is a, a group that has its own court system. It's not to say that it's a fair court system. And so all it does when we say that is to recognize, A, that this is a practice that is happening on the ground. They're all courts, actually. So they're there. Right. So we, we should probably you know, open our eyes and, and see that. And B, to give ourselves a tool beyond merely labeling that as acts of terrorism. And, and, and that is typically what governments do. And the PKK is a good example. It is listed as a terrorist organization by Turkey, Canada, you know, many, many other countries. And once you've said that, there, there's really nothing much more to add. So it's a terrorist group and they do, you know, terrorist things. And it, it may well be that, you know, the PKK is a terrorist group. I think it has certainly carried out acts of terrorism that meets you know, every definition of terrorism. But at the same time, it is also an state armed group engaged in a non-international armed conflict under IHL. And that calls for, you know, it's a group that could do two things at the same time, or that could be two things at the same time. It can both be a terrorist group and also a non-state armed group engaged in armed hostilities. And so it, it requires a certain mental exercise of, you know, disconnecting the unlawfulness of the endeavor as a whole with the lawfulness of particular gestures and practices of an armed group. And you might say that, you know, okay, the, the, the PKK is carrying out acts of terrorism and as such has violated public international law, prohibits terrorism, but declares it a crime, but it may do other things. That, that are not necessarily criminal. And, you know, this kind of disconnect is one of those gifts that, that lawyers have, that, that others don't, of thinking or holding two contradictory thoughts at the same time and not being bothered by it. And, you know, it connects to the, the title of your blog, you know, uh, Jib Jab, and, and the idea that you said Bellum and you said Bellum are two separate things. And that, you know, a war might be completely illegal uh, we don't care. We're still going to look at the legality on their use in bello of actions that were taken. And of course, a reasonable person might say, yeah, but it's all illegal. It says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, we're, we're still interested in, you know, how war is, is pursued. Because even if a war is illegal, we'd rather not have POWs tortured than executed. And, and so we care about how, however illegal the war is, uh, the war is being pursued. And so it is the same thing, and it's a bit of a response to the, the general labeling of terrorism that is systematically applied by the respective governments to each of the groups that I look at. And, you know, we've done that for ISIS and, uh, and other groups, but of course, you know, the Colombian government did that for FARC and the Sri Lankan government did that for Tamil Tigers. And, and all these groups did carry out acts of terrorism. 
And I did blue up bombs in, in civilian settings like with no military targets. And so they, it's not to say that they didn't carry out acts of terrorism, but that, that doesn't exhaust the possibility of analysis under public international law. I think that's a, a good place to, to end. But before I let you go, of course, I'm going to ask you to recommend three readings to our, our listeners think that uh, may have been overlooked or, for that matter, is a classic that they absolutely have to read. Yeah, so I tried to kind of go in three different directions for that. First, this book by Stuart Eldon called uh, The Birth of Territory. And this is not a law book, but it's a book that lawyers, I think, would learn a lot by reading because territory is something that we constantly talk about as lawyers and that we rarely reflect upon. And this is, it comes from human geography. And, and the argument is that, you know, territory is not land. Territory is already a certain kind of a claim related to land that, that creates territory. And one version said that administration creates territory. And so for, for law of war people for whom territorial control is a quick kind of a concept to invoke uh, and really important, it's useful to realize that this is actually a really loaded uh, notion that is rarely unpacked, but that can be, it could be very helpful for lawyers to have a deeper understanding of the way in which we think about territory. A second piece, this is a, in the category of classics by now, is uh, Malti Kaskaniemi's Gentle Civilizer of Nation, just to situate the norms that we have today in the general evolution of public international law since it started to emerge as a distinctive regime in, in the 19th century, and to acknowledge, you know, the political nature of that process and, and the reason why we have norms that capture certain interests much more than others today, including humanitarian law, which is, you know, by and large, a, a regime that protects the interest of states and, and in, a, in a related way of individuals, but not of other actors like non-state or groups. It's sort of obvious but it's important to situate it. And finally, something that I'm not sure whether people would be familiar with that book. There's a wonderful book by Sarah Newen called Complementarity in the Line of Fire, which is, uh, she's a, a Dutch scholar that teaches in uh, Cambridge University, although she's now in, in Florence on an extended leave at the European University Institute. And it is sort of a, a kind of ethnography of the principle of, of the complementarity under the Rome Statute, looking at how it plays out in Uganda. Because the idea of complementarity is that the SEC intervenes only if local court systems fail, you know, or unwilling or unable to uh, sanction international crimes. And so she went to see, you know, okay, so what's the effect of having this court that might come down on you? And it's a fascinating book uh, explaining how it's difficult to show that the Rome Statute has had that kind of a huge impact on how things like war crimes are being dealt with at the domestic level in places like Uganda. Fascinating. 
Well, Renee, thank you so much for, for making time for this and for sharing your thoughts. Again, we've only sort of scratched the surface of your majestic book. And so I encourage all of our listeners to run out and get it. But this hopefully will have wet people's appetite and given them some insights into a, a really interesting set of issues. Thank you so much. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for your blog. I think it's a great contribution to sharing ideas more generally around the laws of war. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which again is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at JibJabPodcast for updates on the upcoming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe and take care.